Hi, this is Brad Constantine, and this is a podcast recording of the Old Testament. Although this is not an official recording of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, every effort's been made to be as doctrinally accurate as possible. I'll be using for the text the Joseph Smith translation of the Old Testament, along with many commentaries from general authorities of the Church, BYU professors, Bible scholars, and others. This format will be very detailed, and so if you want a deep analysis of the Old Testament, you come to the right place. Thanks for your attendance. Hi, and welcome back to the Old Testament podcast. Today's episode is going to be Leviticus chapter 1. So we're starting the book of Leviticus, and to do that, I'm going to read a little bit of an introduction about the book itself. The book of Leviticus gets its name from the tribe of Levi, the priesthood tribe of ancient Israel. It can be called Israel's priesthood handbook, for in it are contained the laws and ordinances that governed the duties of the ancient Aaronic priesthood. To sum up its general contents, it tells us in its first part, uh, chapters 1 to 16, how Israel was to approach God together with what, symbolically speaking, was was inconsistent with such approaches, and in its second part, 17 to 27, how having been brought near to God, the people were to maintain, to enjoy, and to exhibit the state of grace of which they had become partakers. Of course, all is here symbolical, and and we must regard the directions and ordinances as conveying in an outward form so many spiritual truths. Perhaps we might go so far as to say that part one of Leviticus exhibits in a symbolical form the doctrine of justification, and part that of sanctification, or more accurately, the part of access to God and holiness, which is the result of that access. So part one is has to do with justification, and part two has to do with sanctification. And that was by Edersheim, Alfred Edersheim. The book of Leviticus contains direct revelation from God through Moses to Israel. It was the priesthood handbook of that generation. This fact makes the book of great interest, for whenever God speaks to man, he reveals himself. Through the pages of Leviticus, one can come to understand him and his purpose better. The modern reader may feel the contents of the book are outdated, especially those that deal with blood sacrifice, yet all were designed, as Amulek said, to point to the infinite atonement of Christ. One scholar noted the following about the various sacrifices and offerings. The first point, then, which requires our notice, is this. In each offering, there are at least three distinct objects presented to us. There is the offering, the priest, the offerer, A definite knowledge of the precise import of each of these is absolutely requisite if we would understand the offerings. What then is the offering, what the priest, what the offerer? Christ is the offering, Christ is the priest, Christ is the offerer. Such and so manifold are the are the relations in which Christ has stood for man and to man that no one no one type or set of types can adequately represent the fullness of them. Thus we have many distinct classes of types and further variations in these distinct classes, each of which gives us one particular view of Christ, either in his character or in his work or person. But see him as we may, we may for sinners. He fills, he fills more than one relation. This causes the necessity of many emblems. First he comes as offerer. Both we cannot see the offerer without the offering, and the offerer is himself the offering. And he who is both the offerer and offering is also the priest. As man under the law, our substitute, Christ stood for us towards God as offerer. 
he took the body prepared for him as his offering that in it and by it he might reconcile us to God. Thus, when sacrifice and offering had wholly failed, when at man's hand God would no more accept them, then said he, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, I delight to do thy will, O God, yea, thy law is within my heart. Thus his body was his offering, he willingly offered it, and then as priest he took the blood into the holiest. As offerer we see him, man under the law, standing our our substitute for us to fulfill all righteousness. As priest, we have him presented as the mediator, God's messenger between himself and Israel, while as the offering, he has seen the, the innocent victim, a sweet savor to God, yet bearing the sin and dying for it. Thus, in the selfsame type, the offerer sets forth Christ in his person as the one who became man to meet God's requirement. The offering presents him in his character and work as the victim by which the atonement was ratified, while the priest gives us a third picture of him in his official relation as the appointed mediator and intercessor. Accordingly, when we have a type in which the offering is most prominent, the leading thought will be Christ the victim. On the other hand, when the offerer of priest predominates, it will represent it will respectively be Christ as man or Christ as mediator. And that was by Jukes in Law of the Offering. Uh, this is out of the student guide. It says, The Apostle Paul taught that the law of Moses was a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. In other words, the purpose of the law of Moses was to help the Israelites focus their attention on principles that would point them to Jesus Christ. The law of Moses was very strict and required many specific performances designed to help the children of Israel continually remember God and their duty toward him. For example, killing an animal as a sacrifice for sin reminded an individual that the consequences of sin are deadly. On the other hand, the innocent animal who died in the place of the person who sinned also served as a symbol of what would occur when the sinless Savior would come to earth and have his blood shed for us, saving us from sin. Leviticus 1 gives instructions for a burnt offering. The priests made this offering twice a day. Individuals could also make a burnt offering to show their devotion and commitment to God. Many of the instructions concerning the burnt offering are the same as for other offerings explained in Leviticus. The highest difference between the burnt offering and other offerings is that to make a burnt offering, the entire animal was burned on the altar, symbolizing total commitment or surrender to God. As you read, think about different ways the burnt offering can teach us about the atonement of Jesus Christ and how it reminded the Israelites of their duty to God. Leviticus 2-7 through describes in detail the different sacrifices the Israelites were to offer. Leviticus 2 describes the meat or meal offering. Leviticus 3 describes the peace offering. Leviticus 4-5 through describes the different kinds of sin and trespass offerings. And Leviticus 6 and 7 contains additional instruction concerning all of the various offerings. All right, verse 1, And the Lord called unto Moses and spake unto him out of the tabernacle of the congregation, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, ye shall bring your offering of the cattle, even of the herd and of the flock. If the if his offering be a burnt, offer, a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish, Hebrew is whole or sound, he shall offer it in his own voluntary will at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation before the Lord. The Hebrew word translated without blemish means to be sound or whole. In addition to this requirement, all sacrificial animals had to meet two other requirements. They had to be of the category of that the Lord declared clean, and they also had to be from domesticated herds and flocks. In the clean animals, which he had obtained 
by his own training and care and which constituted his ordinary livestock and in the produce obtained through the labor of his hands in the field and vineyard from which he derived his ordinary support. The Israelite offered the food which he procured in the existence of his God-appointed calling as a symbol of the spiritual food which endureth unto everlasting life and which nourishes both soul and body for, for imperishable life in fellowship with God. In this way, the sacrificial gifts acquire a representative character and denote the self-surrender of a man with all his labor and productions to, uh, to God. This offering was to be voluntary. It was not forced, but served as a free expression of gratitude on the part of the individual. Anything less would violate a basic principle of free will offering. Uh, verse 4, And he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The laying on of hands was an important part of every sacrifice. This meant transmission and delegation and implied representation, so that it really pointed to the substitution of the sacrifice for the sacrificer. Hence, it was always accomplished, or it was always accompanied by confession of sin and prayer. It was thus done. The sacrifice was so turned that the person confessing looked towards the west while he laid his hands between the horns of the sacrifice. And if the sacrifice was brought by more than one, each had to lay on his hands. It is not quite a settled point whether one or both hands were laid on it, laid on, but all were agreed that it was to be done with one's whole force, as it were, to lay one's whole weight upon the, the substitute. And that was by Edersheim. This practice shows that the sacrifice had a dual symbolism. First and foremost, it represented the only sacrifice that could ultimately bring peace and remission of sins, namely that of Jesus Christ. But the laying on of hands showed a transfer of identity, that is, the offerer put his own identity upon the sacrificial animal. Thus, the slaying of the animal implied symbolically one of two things, depending on the kind of offering. First, it implied that the, that the sinful self, the natural man, as King Benjamin called it, was put to death in order that the spiritual person could be reborn. Paul used this terminology in Romans 6, and the baptismal font is compared to a grave in Doctrine and Covenants 128. Why? Because the old man of sin is buried there. Second, if it was not a sin offering, the death of the animal would imply a giving up of one's life, that is, a total sacrifice of oneself to God. The, whole, the word translated atonement comes from a Hebrew word meaning to cover, over, or hide. The connotation is not that the sin no longer exists, but that the sin has been covered over or more scripturally blotted out before God through his grace or loving kindness. That is to say, the power of sin to separate man from God has been taken away. And that was by Keelan Delich. Thus the word at one moment was used to show that man becomes one with God again. Verse 5, And he shall kill the bullock, Hebrew is the offspring of the cattle or calf, before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood round about upon the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. Of all the elements of the ordinance of sacrifice, nothing played a more prominent part than the administration of the blood of the offering. The manner of its offering was minutely specified by the Lord. Depending on the offering, the blood was dabbed upon the horns of the, of the altar, sprinkled or splashed 
upon all four sides of the altar or dumped out at the base of the altar. The Lord chose blood to dramatize the consequences of sin and what was involved in the process of forgiveness and reconciliation. Therefore, blood symbolized both life and the giving of one's life. Death is the consequence of sin, and so the animal was slain to show what happens when man sins. Also, the animal was a type of Christ. Through the giving of his life for man... By the shedding of his blood, one who is spiritually dead because of sin can find new life. Out of this truth grows a spiritual parallel. As in Adam, or by nature, all men fall and are subject to spiritual death, so in Christ and his atoning sacrifice, all men have power to gain eternal life. And that was by Bruce R. McConkie. The purpose of the shedding of blood was to bring expiation or atonement as noted in, uh, let's see, the Hebrew verb, which is translated by the English word atonement, means to cover. Thus, the smearing, splashing, or daubing of blood covered sins and thus brought about atonement. There is a beautiful paradox in the idea that the righteous are those whose garments are white through the blood of the Lamb. It is the blood of Christ that covers sins and makes us pure so that we can receive at one with God. Thus, the blood with us was a symbol for the whole process by which we, we become reconciled with God. From all, that, from all of this, it is apparent that those in Israel who were spiritually enlightened knew and understood that their sacrificial ordinances were in similitude of the coming death of him whose name they used to worship the Father, and that it was, the, it was not the blood on their altars that brought remission of sins, but the blood that w- would be shed in Gethsemane and on Calvary. And that was again by Bruce R. McConkie. Verse 6, And he shall flay the burnt offering and cut it into into his pieces. And the sons of Aaron and priest, the priest, we'll start over on verse 7, And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order upon the fire. And the priests, Aaron's sons, shall lay the parts, the head and the fat, in order upon the wood that is on the, on the fire which is above the, which is upon the altar. But his innards and his legs shall he wash in water, and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Notice the word savor, that if you add the letter I, it becomes savior. Again, the symbolism of Jesus as the sacrifice. The unique aspect of the burnt offering was the dividing of the animal into various parts and the washing of the innards and legs of the bullock in water. Yet it is with this very thing which gave this this sacrifice its own significance apart from the others. One author described the symbolism thus, Man's duty to God is not the giving up of one's faculty, but the entire surrender of all. So Christ sums up the first commandment, All the mind, all the soul, all the affections. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. I cannot doubt that the type refers to this in speaking so particularly of the parts of the of the burnt offering for the head, the fat, the legs, the innards all are all distinctly enumerated. The head is the well-known emblem of the thoughts, the legs the emblem of the walk, and the innards the constant and familiar symbol of the feelings and affections of the heart. The meaning of the fat may not be quite so obvious, though here also Scripture helps us to the solution. It represents the energy, not of one limb or faculty, but the general health and vigor of the whole. In Jesus, there were all in Jesus, they were all, these were all surrendered and all without spot or blemish. Had there been one thought in the mind of Jesus which was not perfectly given, 
to God, had there been but one affection in the heart of Jesus which was not yielded to his Father's will, had there been one step in the walk of Jesus which was taken not for God, but for his own pleasure, then he could not have offered himself or been accepted as a whole burnt offering to Jehovah. But Jesus gave up all. He reserved nothing. All was burnt, all consumed upon the altar." The washing of the innards and legs suggests the need for one to be spiritually pure, not only in what he does, but also in what he desires. Taken together, these things reveal the quality of the life the Lord lives. His feelings, thoughts, activities, and whole life were placed in submission to God. At the same time, the sacrifice, thoughts, activities, and whole life were placed in submission to God. At the same time, the sacrifice stress the idea that only when the offerer yields himself to God is his life sweet or satisfying to the Lord. In other words, does do our lives have savor to God? Verse 10, And his offering be of the flocks, namely of the sheep and of the goats. For a burnt sacrifice he shall bring a male without blemish or whole or sound. And he shall kill it on the side of the altar northward before the Lord and the priests. Aaron's sons shall sprinkle his blood round about upon the altar, and he shall cut it into pieces and his, with his head and his fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire which is upon the altar. But he shall wash the innards and the legs with water, and the priest shall bring it all and burn it up upon the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord." And if the burnt sacrifice for his offering to the Lord be of fowls, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or of young pigeons. Remember that when Jesus is brought before the the temple, that Mary and Joseph brought two turtle doves to be the sacrifice? That's what's being mentioned here. Verse 15, And the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off his head and burn it on the altar. And the blood thereof shall be wrung out at the side of the altar. And he shall pluck away his crop with his feathers and cast it beside the altar on the east part of the place of the ashes. And he shall cleave it with the wings thereof, but shall not divide it asunder. And the priest shall burn it upon the altar, upon the wood that is upon the fire. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire of a sweet savor unto the Lord. Acceptable sacrifices were from these groups a male ox or bull, a male sheep or goat, a turtle dove or pigeon, the economic situation of the individual determined which animal was sacrificed. That each of these animals was totally acceptable to God is indicative of his mercy. With him, it is not the gift that counts, but the intent of the giver's heart. So anyway, that's the end of chapter one of Leviticus. Now we're in Leviticus and we'll get some more insights into the actual sacrifices and and rituals that they went through. See you next time. Toodaloo. That was dignified, wasn't it?